Uh, today I'm going to end with uh, the end. I don't want to read the whole thing because it's quite long. Um, but it's a well-known poem uh, by Ernest Lawrence Thayer. And probably by the end of, as I read this, you're going to pick up on what it is quickly. And there's something that happened in my life and something that happened recently at an event I was at that kind of brought this back to mind. And so I want to share with you the end of this poem. I said, but one scornful look from Casey and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain. And they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville, for mighty Casey has struck out. Um, yeah, so if, you don't, if you've never heard that poem, it talks about this great hitter. He's going to win the baseball game and strike one, two, three, ends up striking out. And I kind of have that own experience or similar experience in my life. And it was brought to mind by events, and I won't say with what team and who because that would be embarrassing. But if you were at our softball game or played on our team, you know there were certain events that triggered this memory of a team we played against recently, uh, Mighty Casey and striking out and what had happened. But I kind of have that own story in my life. When I was in college, um, I, I was a decent athlete. I was never great at any one thing. I was kind of good at multiple things. So I never like excelled and was the star at anything. I just, I could pick up things pretty quick and I could play them decently. And so I was asked by a friend to play on his work softball team. And I thought, yeah, I'll go out and and I'll play like, thanks for the invite and I'll come out and play. And so I was having a decent night hitting, you know, at slow pitch softball, you you can at least make contact with the ball and, and generally hitting. At that age of my life, I was still fast. And so even ground balls, I could run out. And so I was having a decent night hitting and it comes up later in the game. And there I am at bat, and they decide to walk me. And so they pitch me three balls, and on the fourth ball, that's clearly a ball, I kind of do just one of these, and just has to call it strike one. Because I'm like, I want him to pitch to me, I want to hit, like I don't want to take a walk. And so then the next pitch comes up, and I kind of just do one of those, because I'm not going to take a walk. Like, pitch pitch to me, it's slow pitch softball, I want to hit, let's play. So now it's full count, three and two. And so the pitcher is not going to walk me at three and two. And he pitches me a strike this time, coming right down the middle of the plate. And I stand there, and I have not whiffed a softball probably a few times in my whole life. And wouldn't you know, on a 3-2 count, playing for my friend's work team of guys I don't know, I stand there, and I take a swing, and I swing as hard as I can, and whiff. I whiffed that ball and struck out. Oh my goodness, talk about humiliating. I had to walk back to that dugout with guys I didn't know, like full-grown men at this point, and I'm still like, you know, early 20, like, and, and they're a, a boy in a sense, a kid that has come out there to play with them, and instead of taking a walk, it's one thing to strike out. Striking out at slow-pitch softball is embarrassing enough. If you've done it, like, you feel that shame for your whole life. In fact, you're supposed to, if you play in, like, rec leagues, I shouldn't say this in church, if you play in rec leagues and you strike out, you're supposed to bring a case of beer the next week, because that's how embarrassing it is to strike out at slow-pitch softball. And so I struck out and have to walk back. But beyond that, I had to walk. Like all I had to do was take the walk, go to first base, and I'm there. And I struck out. Man, that was was humiliating. Needless to say, they never asked me to play with them again. (laughs) 
That was my one and only invite to play on that work team. But, you know, in our lives, there's times where we're humbled. And those can be good experiences. You can learn from being humbled. Um, Now, there's a difference, though, between being humbled or humiliated and living in humility. Um, Sometimes instances of being humbled can lead us into living in humility. But I'll speak for myself. I don't want to constantly be humiliated to live in humility. I want to learn that lesson of how do I live in humility without being humiliated my whole life. Like, I don't want to always be the guy walking back to the dugout, striking out and being like, oh, I'm humiliated again, and now I'll be humble about it. I would like to learn some of those lessons. So what does humility mean? What does it look like? How do we do it? Those are some of the things we're going to be looking at today, and we're going to be spending the bulk of our time in Philippians 2, but we're going to look at kind of some other things as we get started down this road of looking at humility and what does it mean to live in humility. And so the first thing I want us to see is in Colossians 3.12, Paul says this in reference to the new self or the self that should be becoming us. After we've come into relationship with Christ, these are things that should be becoming true about us and how we live and what we're putting on, the new self. And so it says this, put on then as God's chosen holy ones and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is one of these characteristics that should start to become more and more true about us as we mature in our relationship with Christ and continue maturing. So what does humility mean? According to Merriam-Webster, the the simplest definition is the freedom from pride or arrogance. And I don't think that's a shocker to anyone that pride and humility don't walk hand in hand. They're in opposition to each other. If we're full of pride and arrogance, we aren't humble. Um, And arrogance and pride are not desirable characteristics in people. Um, The other night, we've had an exchange student staying with us from France. There he is. I'll embarrass him some. He leaves today. Yeah. Hi, Sebastian. So anyways, he's come. Actually, we probably got paired up pretty good because he likes basketball and I like basketball. So we've gone down to the basketball court several times and played together. And even one of the guys down there, I said, he doesn't speak English great. Like, you got to talk a little slower. He's like, it doesn't matter. Basketball speaks all languages. So just get out here. We can play. And, you know, you can play together. But one night afterwards, we're just talking about some of the people we played with. And without, like, saying, like, what did you think or what did you think, we both kind of just said, man, we really didn't enjoy playing with this one guy that was there that night. And we started talking about what we didn't like. And basically what it comes back to is how arrogant he was. Just so arrogant. It's like you don't enjoy being around people like that. And what's funny is sometimes the most arrogant people, they're not even that good. This guy shot like 25 times and made two shots. And he told you all about the two shots he made, but not about his 23 misses. And you want to be like, you missed like every time. There are times you didn't even hit the backboard. And yet you tell us all about the two times you happen to make it. If I shot 25 times, I'd hope I can make more than two. But it's this thing like we don't, like just naturally, most of us are repelled by arrogance, right? And pride in people. That's not something that is, draws us to them. And as Christians, as we're told to be, live in humility and have humble hearts, we see that that's not an ideal quality of pride and arrogance, and it goes in opposition to that. Um, we see multiple times in Scripture that God says he's not in favor of pride or arrogance. James 4, 6, and it even references back to the Old Testament, says this. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As ambassadors of the gospel, which we should be as Christians, as believers, arrogance can be one of the biggest deterrents for sharing the gospel with people or living out Christ-like lives in front of others. It just stands out. People just notice. 
like the kid on the basketball court. We didn't even have to say, like, oh, point him out. We both saw it, and you both picked up that quality very quickly. And this one may not be as bad, but, but personally, it can irritate me a little more than even the person who's just outright arrogant. And, and that's kind of the person who has to inform you of their own humility. They kind of feign humility, and they, they kind of tell you about it. They walk around and almost like, oh, you know, I'm just God's humble servant. And, and they will talk about it and, and draw attention to it. If we have to draw attention to a quality in ourselves that we want people to notice, you're not humble about it. If you have to say, I'm just, I'm humble, then you kind of lose the ability to say you're humble, right? And there's some people who kind of feign humility. And so that, that's, not a, that's not a desirable characteristic either of wanting people to notice it and draw attention to ourselves in that way by kind of feigning it. Um, being humble does not mean weak as we look at what does humility mean. Um, this is one of the reasons I think it's hard, especially for men in the church, Sometimes to, to grasp proper humility and lives of humility, and not that it's not hard for ladies, but sometimes we, we've somehow, and I think wrongly, tied in humility to mean weak. And guys, just generally, by our nature, we don't want to be seen as weak. And so we've taken these two things and been like, well, how can I be humble if I'm weak? And I, think, I don't think that's accurate. It's controlling our strength. It's not using it to prop yourself up, but to lift up others in service and in love. Humility does not mean you're a weak person. C.S. Lewis said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. You know, we don't have to lack confidence or boldness or strength to be humble. Just think, look, look at some of the biblical characters that we preach about, that we read about, that wrote tons of books in the Bible. Do you think they were weak? Do you think Paul was weak? Do you think the guy who went in and preached the gospel and was stoned and left for dead and drug himself up and went back into the city to preach the gospel again was weak? Do you think David was weak when he killed a lion and a bear and slayed Goliath? Or Esther when she went before the king and knew that her life could be taken from her by going in there? Or Stephen? I don't think these biblical people were weak. We could go on and on of characters in the Bible that we find. And humility does not necessarily and should not mean weakness. Bold and courageous people are not the antithesis of humility. So you can be bold and courageous and strong and still be a humble person. But somehow we've kind of tied it in to where, oh, if you're humble, you have to be weak. And I think that's an inaccurate description of what humility is. Humility is freedom from arrogance or pride. Not thinking more of yourself thinking of others. So now we're going to kind of look at how do we live in humility then, or what does it look like in our lives? And so now we're going to pick up in our main passage in Philippians 2, and I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Paul's talking to believers here. This expectation that those inside the body of Christ or the church, this is the expectation for them, is that this is how you will look to others, just count others more significant, of not doing anything from selfishness. And so if you're a believer in Christ... Here's some things that we are kind of expected in regards to humility. And the first thing is this. Humility does not act in selfish ambition. We saw that in verse 3a. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
A humble person is not living for their own selfish ambition. Now, this is a tough one. Is it wrong to have goals or to have desire or to have ambition or to, to pursue accomplishment? I wouldn't say that those things are, are wrong, but I would ask what's the motivating factor or what's the heart factor driving that in your life? What's behind that? And that's, that's the hard part because that's only something you can answer. You know, are you working hard for the glory of the Lord? Are you working hard so you are a good ambassador of the gospel where you work and where you live and where you do your life? Are you working hard to represent God or are you working hard so you get all the praise? Are you driven to do well because you want the Lord's name proclaimed or are you driven to do well because you want yourself lifted up? And that, that's a tough one because sometimes if we do some of these things, even as we studied in Proverbs, a lot of times you work hard, you do these things, you are going to get lifted up, but it shouldn't be you propping yourself up. And your drive and motivation shouldn't be like, I want people to notice me. And I think we could sum it up by asking this, is who do you want people to notice in your life? Yourself or Jesus? Did I try to do a good job on this message so at the end of the day people walk out and say, hey, you did good. I enjoyed hearing you speak, and, and I, I strove for my own self-fulfillment and self-accomplishment, if that's the case. Or did I try to do this for the glory of the Lord and to preach a biblical message accurately? Same thing when you go to work, when you go to teach, or when you're a firefighter, or you're a police officer, or whatever it is you do, did you go there for the glory of the Lord, or did you go there so people notice yourself? Are you pursuing selfish ambition? If so, that's in contradiction to living a life of humility. The next thing we see is humility puts others first in 3B. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. A humble person is going to put others ahead of themselves. And that, that one can be tough. That, that, that one is tough. And I don't know if it's just me, but that one's a real struggle. The thought of putting others first is fine. Like in a classroom, like talking to you right now. Yeah, that sounds fine and we could talk about that. But putting that into practice, that's not an easy thing to do, right? To go out and put others first in your life, I struggle with that. And for most of us, from our earliest ages, we've probably struggled with that against selfishness. Um, some days I, I leave here and I go check in on our kids' classes, and, and maybe I have a little bit of a, a different sense of humor, but sometimes I find it amusing when kids begin to fight over toys. And I, like, part of me doesn't want to break it up. I just want to see, like, hey, let's fight it out and see who's going to get the toy, right? <laughs> Let, let's see who wants it more, a battle to the death over a plastic piece of junk. And, and it's a, it's, it can be humorous at that age, but it's not so funny as they get older, right? That selfishness when it starts to live out in our lives. It's not so funny when our kids are preteens and they're still doing this, or when they're teenagers and they're, they're super selfish and it has to be their way all the time. But you know the worst group of all to be around when they're always selfish and it has to always be their way? It's adults. Man, we, we look at kids, and at least kids, you know, they throw their temper tantrum and life goes on. But adults, we sulk and hold grudges and are bitter for years about things when we don't get our way at times. Sometimes we just have to take a step back and realize we're not supposed to put ourselves first. Humility and living a life of humility will put others first. But our natural, sinful, selfish nature is going to constantly be in conflict against that. When we're born with a sinful nature, a sinful nature desires to put self first. And so that is going to be something we constantly battle if we, live, if we strive to live a life of humility. So a good thought, are you able to and do you put others first? 
Are you able to? Can you notice things in your life where there's things, it's like, I really wanted to do that, or this is what I really wanted, but I was able to put myself secondary and do what someone else wanted, or I was able to allow this person to have this, this win, because I didn't need it, and I could humble myself, and I did not have to be first in this situation. Can you recall moments like this, or it's always had to be about you? You know, some of the big ways we can notice easily, but what about in small ways? Does your inability to put others first come out in small ways? There's some telltale things in our life. In conversation, does it always have to be about me? Is every story a chance for me to talk about my favorite person, me? Did I always do it bigger and better than someone else? Can I ever let just someone kind of share with me? Or do I always have to kind of, oh, I'll add in what I did. Oh, I got I to top that. I've got to do better. These are just reflections maybe of a struggle of our heart. Uh, there's a country song, and I like the artist, but the, the song's really dumb. It's Toby Keith, uh, and it says, it's a whole song, and it says, I want to talk about me. And he goes on and on, and by the end of the song, you're just like irritated by the song. You're like, I don't want you to talk about you. I don't want to hear anything anymore. And I actually like his music, but that song's kind of irritating. There's a comedian, and we're going to in a moment listen to his clip, and in this clip, he's, he's basically talking about people's view of themselves. And his name's Jim Gaffigan. If you've never seen it, Mr. Universe on Netflix. It's pretty family-friendly. Um, probably teenagers and up, you're safe to watch it with. And he has this part in here I want us to listen to where he talks about people's view of themselves. I don't get the mirrors, you know. I don't want to see myself working out. I know what I look like. That's why I'm going to the gym. <laughs> Obviously, there's some people that do want that, right? They're like, if I'm going to be working out, I want to look at something like myself. I want to look at myself while I work on myself. I should do a recording so I can listen to myself while I look at myself while I work on myself. As I leave through my self magazine, read how myself can improve myself. Maybe I'll go to my Facebook page and look at photos of myself. Read what myself has written about myself. Yo soy muy importante. Myself. I don't know what the rabbit was doing up there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways, it's just a funny funny bit there, kind of people's view of themselves, and I think sometimes we just get so caught up and everything has to revolve around us that we struggle to put others first. In Luke 14, 11, it says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And part of me just thinks back to my softball story of exalting myself and thinking like, I'm too good to take a walk. I'm going to get a hit. And what happened? I was humbled and embarrassed. And sometimes when we want to exalt ourselves most, we find ourselves getting humbled and humiliated. And this is one of the things I have to be careful of when it comes to humility and putting others first is there's times I can be nicer caring for someone or put someone else first that I might be able to get something from. It's easy for me to put them first or to give them or to um, show, I would call it even faux humility in those situations and put someone else ahead of myself if I think in return I'm going to get something. And that's not genuine humility. That's manipulation of people. And it's easy to do that. When we think we can get something in return from someone else, then we humble them and put them first because they have something then to turn around and reward me with. 
that's not living a life of humility that puts others first. That's still looking out for yourself. It's doing it in a twisted way, but that's still putting yourself first. And that's one that I got to be careful of. And I could just say, I'm glad that's not what Christ did for us. That he only died for those that could give him something. Or he only was a servant to those that could return the favor. Or he only loved those that would love him back. Biblically, we came and we see that Christ came and died in our most desperate situation. When there was absolutely nothing we could offer. In fact, we said we were dead in our sins. We had nothing. If you're dead, you have nothing to offer anyone. And in the moment of our deadness and sins where we had nothing to offer Christ, that's when he died for us and reached out to us. And and as we're going to see, became a humble servant as we continue reading here in a moment. We also find that humility looks out for the interest of others. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Am I wanting you to succeed as much as I'm wanting myself to succeed? In the Expositor's Bible Commentary, this is what the, the person wrote on it. It said this, It is unnecessary for individuals to be consumed by their own concerns because someone else in the fellowship, and what he's referring to is the church there, will be concerned about them. So are you aware of the needs of others around you? How can we be concerned for others if we're not aware of their needs? And this is one of the things we have to get involved in our church, in our community. There's no way we can be involved in putting the needs of others first if we're not involved in others' lives. And Paul is specifically speaking to the church here. So we have to be connected with people. If we're going to put others first and put their needs first and take care of their needs, we can't do that if we're not aware of them. And so there has to be some form of connection, as Paul's speaking to the church here. And this is one of the reasons kind of small groups are important, is getting people connected with others, caring for people in your group, praying for others. I, w- I was golfing with someone, that's shocker, um, but I went golfing with someone, and it's been a while ago. But one of the things that happened over the course of that time is we just had a conversation and it was about someone in their small group, and I was just saying, like, hey, good job. We reached out to them, but they said their small group had already kind of taken care of this problem and resolved that problem on their behalf and was praying for them and trying to help and be servants to them. And I thought, man, that, that's a huge win for a church and a church family is to have where, where someone from a pastoral staff level reaches out and says, Hey, I heard you're going through this. Is there anything you need? And they say, no, our small group is taking care of us, whatever, whether it was meals or prayer or a hospital visit. And they say, this group of people has has taken care of us. It's looking out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. And that's what Paul's telling us as a church. That's what we should be doing. So this community around you that is Mountain View Church, we call it a church family. In a family, you look out for the interests of others. When mom and dad need help, you go help them. When your brother and sister need help, you go help them. And that should be our same kind of viewpoint within a church, if we're a church family. When this person needs help, we help them. We look out for their own interests. The life that's lived in humility looks out to the interest of others. It isn't just, what can I get? What can you do for me? Serve me. It's, how do I serve others? How do I show humility towards others? And maybe in that situation, maybe all we can do is pray for them. But maybe there's things we need to do. But we should be lifting others up and and concern and pursue their own interests, not just our own. So how do we live in humility? How do we live in humility? Let's pick it up in verse 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To live in humility, we should follow Christ's example. So that is having this mind, the first thing we see, have this mind or change our mindset. We have to change our mind from what's kind of told around us that we should do. Christ is the ultimate example of one humbling himself. The person that had a reason to be boastful chose humility instead. And I think this one is particularly hard in our culture. If we could say particularly hard even for Americans. Uh, Unlike many countries in our world, we've been afforded kind of these liberties and freedom that other people throughout history and a lot of people around the world have never known. I mean, we're blessed because of that, but there's also, we have to acknowledge there's some negative sides that we have to fight against in that too when we look biblically. But we have this thing where we kind of demand equality, right? We have rights, and we demand equality. We have a book we read to our kids, and it's Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. There's another one, Don't Let the Pigeon Stay Up Late. I don't know if if you've ever, I don't know, have you read them, guys? Okay, no, I thought you have little kids. Um, But basically in this book, it's a pigeon that wants to do something, and and he gets to a part, and he's like, he wants to drive the bus. And you just say, no, no, no. And he finally says, I have rights. And you're like, you're a pigeon, right? It's, it's a silly kid's book, but sometimes I think we're, we're like the pigeons, right? Like we demand our rights. We demand equality. We demand this is what is owed to us. And I just think sometimes as Christians, maybe we should pursue servanthood with a greater fervor and worry less about equality or our rights. We can willfully give away those ideas, that notion of rights and equality. What if Jesus, in what we just read here, instead of pursuing humility and service, had pursued his rights and equality? Where would that have left us? Because it says he was in the form of God, but he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't come to earth as the son of God and say, I have a rightful place to declare myself as king, bam, and plant a stake. He said, I'm a humble servant who's going to obey God's will and offer myself up as a sacrifice for sin. Where would that have left us if Christ just demanded rights instead of humbling himself and becoming a servant? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in ourself and our rights and what is due to us, we lose sight of the eternal picture of what was due to us. If we step back and look at it biblically and honestly, what was due to us was death, both earthly and eternal death and separation from God because of our sin. So when we demand rights as Christians... We better be real careful if we think an internal prospect. What was due to us was not always something good. And we find we're told to have this same mind which was in Christ, one that was humbling of himself. Can we humble ourselves? To live in humility, I should humble myself today. Verses 9 through 11. It says this. I'm sorry, guys. Hold on. Yeah, verse 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see Jesus is the name above all names. And Paul is confirming Jesus' deity here by stating his name is above every other name. So the Jews have and still have great reverence for God's name. Um, it was one of the Ten Commandments, if you read that. In fact, if you remember in the Gospels, when Jesus makes a claim to be I am, they, they want to kill him for that because he, he proclaims himself as I am. That was something you, you didn't even declare. And so he's declaring, in a sense, his own deity or equality with God, that he's God in the flesh. And Paul lifts up the name of Jesus here, absolutely. But in a sense, he's lifting far more than just the name of Jesus up here. He's lifting up the person of Jesus Christ and who he was. He's saying he is God. He was the Messiah. So it's not just the, the name Jesus that's elevated. It was the actual person of Jesus Christ that he's elevating and lifting up here. And it says Jesus has humbled himself and God exalted him. That's the living representation of what humility should look like and what humbleness should come out as. We humble ourselves. God exalts us. And it says basically he humbled himself. God exalted him. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, that ultimately everyone's going to bow before him. So certain, certain names trigger importance when you hear them, um, or at least in our culture they do. So like when you hear Tiger Woods, you all kind of think golfer. I mean, are, are we just naturally think a great golfer. Or Michael Jordan, we think a great basketball player. Or Warren Buffett, we think incredibly wealthy. Like names trigger a thought in our mind often. And oftentimes, for, for us, we're boastful about whether it's fame or financial wealth or abilities in sports. Um, a lot of times, that's kind of what people are known most for. But sometimes it's almost laughable when we think about in comparison to Jesus. We think in comparison to the God who created all this. Of the things we worship and the things we lift up and we elevate so high. And we find that the one who created all this the one that walks on water, that brought people back to life, that did things way more impressive than hitting a home run, is Jesus. And sometimes we lift these people up so much and we elevate them to such a high stature. What do we look at at Jesus? What do we think of him? Are we elevating him? Are we lifting him up? Are we propping him up in our thoughts and our worship and how we live our lives? You know, most of us will never have renowned, like, what, this great amounts of wealth or great athletic ability or fame, and yet we still can find ourselves thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. And it would probably be very wise if we adjust our attitude about ourselves and bow our knee to Jesus now and lift him up instead of lifting ourselves up. Just a few other verses I found, and I could have had a bunch more, but here's just a few more. Romans 12:3. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's a biblical mode for how to be great. Matthew 23.11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now that's probably not going to fill a lot of conference centers or be on a New York Times bestseller list. We kind of want to know how do we improve ourselves we relate a lot more to that Jim Gaffigan clip than we probably want to admit. It's how do I improve myself? How do I lift myself up? Then whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever's a servant or whoever's the least of all will be greatest of all. But that's the biblical mode for humility is serving, of putting others before ourselves. To live in humility, we should bow our knee to Jesus now.
We need to admit Jesus is Lord while we can. We were told in those verses a minute ago there in Philippians that at some point every knee will bow before him. Ultimately, biblically we find we're all going to bow before Jesus. The decision is when do you do it? The result of that decision, though, can have an eternal impact. If you bow your knee to Jesus now, admitting he is Lord and believing in Christ as Savior and placing your faith in him, you spend eternity with him in heaven. You've bowed before him as Lord and Savior now while you can. If you wait, that happens on the day of judgment, and you will bow before him someday. But at that point, it's too late. You're facing judgment when you stand before him. You're not coming before him as your Savior, but as your judge. And so Paul tells us at some point we all bow our knee. You can choose when you do that. And I want to encourage you to do that today. So how do we bow before Jesus as king? We say this often. We admit we're sinners, that we couldn't do it on our own, that we're broken people, we're messed up. Two, we believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And then we choose to place our faith in him alone as Savior. That's how we bow before him. We don't have to literally bow. That's how we bow our hearts before Jesus, admitting he is Lord and he is Savior and believing as Christ is Savior. As I read through these verses today, it was a pretty clear message that kept running through the whole thread of all of them. It's this, it's don't elevate yourself. Don't elevate, don't prop yourself up. Whoever humbles themselves will be lifted up by the Lord. Whoever exalts or praises themselves will be humbled at some point. If I'm trying so desperately to get myself to be noticed, it's most assuredly that at some point I'm going to be humbled. Our culture has really kind of embraced the me first mentality in a lot of ways. Do what's convenient or do what's easiest. Look out for number one. Do what makes you happy. But that doesn't, that, that, not only does that not have to be that way, that should not be the way Christians are known to operate, of just looking out for number one. You know, we've looked at several verses, and we could look at many more, but that should not be what's known of us. As Paul said at the very beginning when we looked at that verse, that shouldn't be one of the qualities and characteristics that's becoming noticed in our life, of arrogance and pride and propping self up. In fact, it should be the opposite of humbling myself and propping others up in my life. I want to start kind of wrapping it up, and I want to read a short devo here uh, from Mother Teresa on humility. And if you know anything about her, she, she lived her life as a servant, um, basically lived in poverty her entire life uh, to serve others. And, and here's a, a short devotion she wrote on humility. It said this, These are a few ways we can practice humility. To speak as little as possible of oneself, to mind one's own business, not to want to manage other people's affairs, to avoid curiosity, to accept contradictions and correction cheerfully, to pass over the mistakes of others, to accept insults and injuries, to accept being slighted, forgotten, and disliked, to be kind and gentle even under provocation, never to stand on one's own dignity and to choose always the hardest. I don't know about you guys, I, I hate admitting when I'm wrong. Like, I, ah, it's hard. I, and, and also in that same vein, I, I hate admitting when I don't know the answer even, or I can't solve a problem. Like, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, well, I know what the problem is. It's a pride and arrogance thing. I, that's the problem. But I hate it when there's something I have to admit I'm not good at, or I can't do, 
or I don't know, or I can't figure it out. That, that's, that's a real challenge, and I struggle with that. I don't want to admit I was wrong, or I didn't know. And I think pride might be one of the biggest reasons people don't turn to Christ as Savior. Pride was the reason Satan got kicked out of heaven. Because in order to come to Christ as Savior, it has to relinquish this idea of pride, or that I could do it all on my own, or that I had the answer, that I had the solution. We're not Frank Sinatra. We didn't do it our way. We have to come to this point where we say, like, I couldn't do it my way. My way was going to lead to destruction. My way was going to lead to death. My way was taking me a direction I didn't want to go. And in order to come into that first initial relationship, beginning that relationship with Christ, there has to be this aspect of humility where we say, I can't do it on my own. I'm not the solution to my own problem. We have to humble ourselves before Jesus and lift him up to a different position instead of just being someone we kind of heard about and know about he becomes Lord and Savior in our lives so we have to admit we're that sinner and we're lost and that is a real battle against pride humility and pride don't go hand in hand they're in opposition to each other and to come to that point of salvation and to mature in that salvation to begin living lives of humility we're going to constantly be at war and at battle against our pride and our arrogance So can you come and say you were wrong and you messed up and you're not always right? These are some telltale signs of where we're at. Fortunately, Jesus was the solution to our sin problem. And today in a moment, we're going to celebrate that in communion, but I want to kind of close with this one verse here. And we already read it, but it was in Philippians 2.8. It said this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Man, you look at Christ's example of humility. It wasn't just freedom from pride or I'm going to do, I'm going to love those who love me or for this moment I can help someone else. It was the ultimate humbling yourself to the lowest point of saying I'm willing to die on a cross for other people that may not even love me that many will still despise me, but yet I'm willing to humble myself to this lowest of low points. Death on a cross, humiliation, mocked, hanging before his peers so that we can enter into heaven or know Christ as Savior and have eternity in heaven. And so as we get ready to partake of communion in a moment, I just kind of want you to be thinking through that. What does humility look like in your life? We worship a Savior that was mocked and beaten and died on a cross and says he humbled himself to that point. He willfully let that happen to himself. He could have stopped it. He willfully let that happen to ourselves. And yet so many of us, we go out and we live our lives this week and we're going to go out and we're going to demand our rights and demand our equality and demand this happens and serve me and live for me and it's about me and what do I want to do? And yet we're told to follow Christ's example of humbling ourselves and becoming a servant and becoming obedient. And we look to our Savior and say, obedient to the point of death. Are we willing to humble ourselves and put others first? Let's pray. Lord, it is not easy. I I can speak for myself. I I can be selfish. I can be prideful. I can want it my way all the time. Lord, help us to begin pursuing humility. 
in our life, as we're told as Christians, this would be something we're known for is our humility. Help us to put others first, to use our strength not to lift ourselves up, but to lift others up, to be ambassadors for the gospel. Use our talents, use our abilities to serve others, to serve you, instead of serving ourselves and getting what we want. Uh, may we reshift and reframe our focus to the world around us and not to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.